You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Genesis chapter number 3. As you know, when you come to the book of Genesis, uh, you're going to come and read about the beginnings of something. Because the word Genesis means beginnings. And and really when we look at the subjects that are in the Bible, all Bible subjects, pretty much all the Bible subjects have their beginnings in the book of Genesis. And and when we read through, we find that these subjects here that are mentioned in the book of Genesis, we learn that uh, they have what's called the law of first mention. Which simply just means that when God teaches us about something in the book of Genesis, that that's how it, it stays consistent to that teaching or belief all the way through the Bible. It doesn't evolve into something else. For example, marriage in the book of Genesis that God ordained was between a male and a female, and that's consistent through the whole Bible. It doesn't change because of time or culture. It it's, remains the same. A, a day in the Bible was a 24-hour day basically in Genesis, it's still a 24-hour day. It's not parts of days as you travel along through the Bible. It's the same. And it doesn't make any difference if it's marriage, if it's redemption. Man has to be saved the same way in the Old Testament by faith as we do in the New Testament. And so we find that this law first mentioned in these Bible subjects. So the Bible subject that I want us to look at this morning might seem strange to you because it's, a, it's really uh, it's the, the word that we're going to talk about is not found in Genesis chapter 3, but all the manifestations of this wonderful virtue of God is mentioned here. And so in Genesis chapter number 3, we're, uh, we, 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 we begin reading in verse number 1, and the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now God didn't tell them they couldn't touch it. She's already added something here. The Bible didn't say they couldn't touch it. The Bible just said they couldn't eat it. If she'd have touched it, she wouldn't have died, but when she ate it, So the Bible says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made uh, themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I I was naked and hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, 
Well, the woman whom thou gavest to me with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said unto the serpent, uh, said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to be here at Eastside. We're grateful for every soul that's here this morning. I pray you'll give us attentive hearts and help us to look at this chapter not as a chapter of gloom and doom, although often when we read Genesis 3, it's just filled with the gloom of falling into sin and God's judging that sin and the consequences of it. But Lord, behind the shadows of all of this is the marvelous grace of God uh, that comes on the scene for the very first time in the book of Genesis. And so Lord, help me this morning as we preach about your marvelous grace given to us and we'll be great, uh, glad to thank you for it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now because Genesis chapter 3 basically is well known as being that chapter that records the fall of man, we know that, and God's judgment on Adam and Eve's disobedience and, and so forth, that we might say, well, what else could come out of this chapter but just gloom and doom? Because it's a gloomy, doomy chapter when you look at it. But, but uh, actually we, we look at the book of Genesis and though the, the Genesis chapter 3 doesn't mention the word grace, I want to speak on that subject this morning about God's grace in our life. Because I believe that God's grace uh, abounds over gloom and doom in our life. And so we all know the story of Genesis 3 well. Uh, man is living in a state of innocence at this time. It's the dispensation of innocence. He has absolutely no knowledge, Adam doesn't, at this point of evil. He has no uh, knowledge of wrongdoing. When you think about it, uh, there was only one wrong thing that Adam could do. He couldn't go out and kill his neighbor because there was no other neighbors. He couldn't commit adultery because there was no other women. Uh, he couldn't uh, covet and, you know, lie about something because he hadn't sinned. He had no sin nature at this point. And there's no other gods to worship and bow down to except only the Lord Jesus Christ who created him. And so really he's been given only one prohibition in the book of Genesis and the disobedience to that one commandment is the only chance he has to do wrong and to sin. And, and, and yet when you think about it he can only make one mistake and he has only 1% chance. This one writer said he can only make one mistake, he has only 1% chance of sinning he does not have any knowledge of sin. He does not have the nature of sin. He does not uh, really have any desire to sin. He doesn't have much opportunity to sin. And yet in spite of all of that, he sins. <laughs> Think about that. You know, he, he sinned. What, what, what an ugly word, the word sin. The Bible says that all transgression of the law or unrighteousness is sin. In fact, sin in the Bible is described in three ways. It's basically called iniquity. It, it's called transgression, which when God sets down a policy or a standard and we step over that, we are transgressing. So transgression 
is, is the transgression of one of God's laws. And here he commanded him not to do this. And he stepped over that and did it and committed sin. So you have sin, iniquity, and transgression in the Bible. And they all speak pretty much to the same, though they have variables in regards to, what, uh, to that sin. But in the same chapter we have introduced to us the devil. For the very first time the devil is mentioned here. Disobedience is mentioned. Death is mentioned. I mean really when you think about it, uh, chapter 3 could be a very gloomy chapter. I mean man's living in innocence, everything's going fine, the devil steps on the scene and now he's deceived Eve and she's going to sin and sin's going to come into the world. The Bible says for as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin passed upon all men so that all have sinned. And so really we, we, we know that sin has its beginnings right here. And sin is the same throughout the whole Bible. Whatever God hated in the book of Genesis, he still hates today. There's no difference in that. God still hates that today. This is why it's called a timeless book. From one culture to one generation to the next, you can preach the same stuff because God says this is exactly the way it is when I started it, and I've, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. But friend, chapter number three is not just about the devil. It's not just about... Uh, his deception to Eve. It's not about their disobedience which results in death, physical death and spiritual death because right when everything looks to be the bleakest, God steps on the scene yes. in this chapter. There in verse number 8. In fact, uh, verse number 8 could be, in my opinion, one of the most important verses in the Bible because if God had not come into the garden and spoken to Adam and Eve and made a provision for them, why then they would have been left in their sin and condemnation and there would have been no hope for the human race. And so really when you stop and think about it, chapter, verse number 8, notice what it says here, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And so right after they've committed sin, and it looks as though mankind is, is on its way down, the Bible says, so God comes. And that's the grace of God. You think about it. And so I want us to notice some things here in this passage uh, as we look at it uh, in the ways that God manifested his grace towards those that became sinners. And I want you to notice, first of all, that through Adam and Eve had both sinned and disobeyed God, that God was still willing to come to them. Now that's an important point. In other words, Grace was manifested when he came, when he came to them. Now apparently it was God's, you know, habit or custom to come every day in the cool of the day and uh, to commune and to fellowship with Adam and Eve. And it suggested that they would walk and talk together uh, in, the, uh, in fellowship with one another. Just the three of them. I, I thought about that. I thought, boy, I would have loved to have been there when God came down and every day get to fellowship with God and commune with God. I can't even comprehend what that would be like. But every day in Adam and Eve's life, God would come into the garden of Eden where he placed them, and he would fellowship and commune with them and probably talk to them and so forth. And so here he comes on this particular day to do what he's always done to fellowship with them. But we read from Genesis, man was created in the likeness of God, and therefore man desired as well and needed fellowship. And by the way, God created man because God needs that fellowship. God wants our fellowship just like we want 
and should need God's fellowship. But the sin entered into the world and death by sin. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed, they became something that they had never been before. And that was sinners. Sinners. Their sin caused a great separation between them and their creator. You see, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 59 that your sin and your iniquity has separated you between you and your God. And so really when we think about that, when minute we're born into this world, we're automatically conceived in sin. We have a sin nature that we got from Adam. Uh, not from Eve, but from Adam. Because the sin nature, the carnal nature, passes through the male, not the female, at birth. And you can medically find that out. And so when we think about Jesus coming into the world and he was never had any contact with a male in his birth, he was virgin born, he did not, he did not receive a sin nature from Adam because he'd never been born in the same manner that all of us are born. So when we have a mom and a dad, you automatically have a sin nature from the moment that you're born. And the Bible says you're conceived in sin. And the moment you're conceived in sin, you, that's when you're, you're a sinner right then. You don't, you're not a sinner when you do sins. You're already a sinner. And because you are a sinner, that's why you do sin. And so we, we think about that. We think about the Bible says because of that sin nature that's within us, we're separated from God. And we, we can see that because the Bible says in verse number 8 that when they heard the voice of God walking in the garden, Adam and his wife immediately hid themselves from the presence of God. Now they had never done that before. But because sin entered in, sin separated them. Sin caused something to where they were so ashamed of what they'd done, they didn't want to commune with God, they didn't want to, uh, you know, get together with God, they didn't want to, uh, you know, talk to God, they didn't want God to talk to them. Here's two people who loved God's presence before the fall and fellowship and probably looked with anticipation every day for Him to come and suddenly now they're hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord and from the face of God, afraid to approach God. Uh, you know, uh, the Bible tells us in Romans 3 that mankind is not going to seek God. Nobody seeks God that's unsaved. I, I didn't get saved until I was 20 years old when I was in the military during the Vietnam conflict. And I got saved in the Philippine Islands 52 years ago. And uh, when, before I got saved, I didn't go to church. I wasn't seeking God. I wasn't interested in the Bible. I certainly didn't want to meet with God on a daily basis. I was just doing my own thing and living in my own sin. And then when I came to realize that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior, that's when I turned to God. When the Holy Spirit of God showed me that I couldn't live life without Him, that's when I turned to the Lord. Not until that time. And so Adam and Eve here, uh, you know, God comes to them and I thought, boy, what marvelous grace of God to come to them when he was under no obligation after they had committed this sin, under no obligation to come to them and fellowship with them. But he's going to seek out them so to restore that fellowship. You know, the sovereign is here seeking the sinner, and God had every right to stay away and leave them in the sin and ruin. His holiness allowed him to curse uh, his creation and let it run its course. His justice permitted him to destroy the creation without warning. But instead, no, he came. That's the grace of God. He, he came to where they were. He came seeking them out. Folks, he didn't have to do that. 
He didn't have to come into the garden that day. He, he was God. He already knew that they, what they had done, but he comes anyway. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved his creation so much that he was willing to come to them even in their sin and meet with them. Amen. He came to them. You know, he, he was not obligated to come to them. And by the way, he wasn't obligated to come to us either. He didn't have to come to us. Luke 19.10 says, For I've come, Jesus said, to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus said in John 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus said, I've, I want them to have the kind of life I want them to have. And I know they're not in their sin ever going to come to me. They're never going to come to me. No man cometh to him except the Spirit draw him. So the Bible says, no man's going to come to me, so I'm going to come down and seek and save them. I'm going to come to them. I think, thank God for his grace to be able to do that. He came to us. You know, and I got to thinking about him coming to us. I got to thinking he comes to us in different ways. Sometimes he can come to us through the preaching of a preacher where he knows that somebody's out there that doesn't, that's in sin and God's saying, listen, I'm coming to you through the preaching of this preacher. You need to listen. He's trying to come to you through that preaching. It may be that he's come to you from a friend or a coworker, or God is coming to you from a parent or a believer or a pastor or the Holy Spirit or a neighbor or whatever. God uses different means to try to come to us. I was uh, down in Sioux City uh, this last week and I was in an antique store. My wife and I, when we don't have uh, preaching to do, we have a day off, she likes to go to antique stores and I like going to junk stores. Well, I found that most antiques are old junk, but anyway, fill these stores up. But we go there, and I'm in this store. She's actually getting her nails done, and I said, well, she says, I'll be about an hour and a half. I said, what am I going to do? Because I'm not coming in and get my nails done. You know, I've had preachers tell me, you ought to go get a pedicure. <laughs> it isn't going to happen with this guy. Uh -uh. You ought to go get a pedicure. You ought to get a manicure or whatever. No, there ain't no woman. I ain't sitting in no salon having somebody tickle my toes and, and mess with my fingers and so forth. That's just not me. It might be you. You might say, oh, you ought to go. It feels good. Well, I'm never going to know until the next life or something because it ain't going to happen in this life. But anyway, my wife is getting her nails done, so I decided to go to a junk store. I go into the junk store, and the guy in there, he's talking to me a little bit, and uh, he asked me a little bit about uh, who I was and where I came from and so forth. And as soon as I told him I was a Baptist preacher, he said, well, I'm a Methodist. And I said, oh, okay. He said, yeah. He said, let me ask you a question. And he gets into asking me, where are all these churches come from? Where did they all come from? And so forth. Well, I got a chance to witness to him and tell him where all the churches, different types of churches come from. He said, well, he said, you know, my pastor, she's a, a woman. She preaches barefooted. And some of the members don't like it. But he said, ah, she delivers a good message. And and so I got into the things about, well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been saved or born again? He said, you know, I, I, I've heard about that, but I don't know anything about it. He said, you know, he said, you know what my problem is? And I said, no, tell me. He said, I don't know anything about the Bible. And I got to thinking, then what do you go into a church that doesn't teach anything about the Bible? Well, why don't you go to where you can learn something about the Bible? So I told him, he said, well, if I were to decide on which church to go to, how would I know which church to go to? I said, if you'll just go and read the book of John 
and begin to go through that slowly. God will show you how to be saved and born again, which, by the way, you have to be in order to go to heaven. And I says, and through just reading this old King James Bible, eventually God will begin to direct you to the kind of church that you need to be in. Because all these other churches, if they don't align with the Bible, you don't want to go to them. You know, and so thankful for Eastside that aligns with the scriptures. You're in a church that teaches and preaches what God thus saith the Lord. The whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. So he calls Adam, and I might just mention that God spoke first. He called out to him. Not did he just come to him, but his grace was manifested when he called to him. Did you notice there in verse number 9, he said this, And the Lord God called unto Adam. He didn't just come into the garden and come to them. He calls out to them. That's the grace of God. The grace of God calling to them. Uh, I hear, you know, when you think about this, when God called out to Adam, I would have kind of expected that maybe uh, to hear thundering voices of judgment and wrath. And I would not be surprised to have heard an announcement about uh, your judgment on what you did. But instead I hear a call. He's calling to him. He's come searching for Adam to talk to him. He wants to talk to him. He didn't come just to look at the misery of his sin. He didn't come to, you know, get a high on kicking him out of the garden. He didn't come to do any of that. No, he called to Adam. And I might just mention that God spoke first. Adam didn't speak to Adam. I could just see Adam and Eve hiding in the garden with their little fig leaves. And they, they can hear him walking into the garden. And I can just see Adam saying something like this. Shh, don't say nothing. Just be quiet. He can't find us. He won't find us. Adam, where art thou? Oh, by the way, I might just tell you, God already knew where they were. He's God. He didn't come there to say, well, I can't find them. I have no idea where they're hiding. You know, the Bible says they want to hit, hid themselves in the midst of the garden. And he comes to them in his grace and calls to them out of his grace and says where art thou so God says what you know think about this where art thou as I got to thinking about that what a statement for us to think about in other words the idea is a it's not only where art thou but where are you at not meaning that I've got you've got to speak up or come out or I can't find you but it's almost like he was saying this Adam where are you at in relationship to me and you where are you at? Where art thou in relationship to our fellowship today? Where art thou? Where are you at? As I thought about that statement, I read that several thoughts came to mind. Here's Adam who had once loved fellowshipping with God and trusting God to provide for his every need and is hiding from God and afraid to face God and separated from God, guilty and conscious of his sin. And God says, where art thou? Where are you at, Adam? Even though he already knew where they were at, asking him, where are you at today in relationship to God? That might be a question we could pose to you today. Where art thou in relationship to God? Where are you at in regards to fellowship? I'm not talking about relationship. When you get born again and saved, you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ that can never be severed. You can never lose that relationship. But you can have a relationship with God and not be in fellowship with God. 
There's many in our churches today that are, can say, well, oh, I've been saved. I know Jesus is my Savior, but, but there's no fellowship with him. And the reason there's no fellowship, because when the only thing that breaks the fellowship is sin. When we have something in our life that's not right with God, we immediately, our, our fellowship's broken with him. And God tries to come to us and God calls out to us and he's actually posing a question, where art thou? You know, and as I thought about if I pose that question to many today, the answer might come back, well, I'm in trouble with my marriage. That's where I'm at. Or I'm engrossed in sin and wrongdoing or I'm backslidden or I'm in trouble with the law or I'm lonely and lost and empty inside and, or maybe I'm just completely backslidden and out of church altogether. Hey, Ever, any and all of those could be where somebody's at today. I'm just lost and don't even know Jesus as my Savior. If I died today, I don't know that I'd go to heaven. That's where you're at. Can I tell you, where two or three are gathered together in his name, he's there in the midst. He's come to us. He's calling to you. Well, I can't hear him. He's calling to you through the preaching. He's calling to you through the Spirit of God trying to draw you. He's calling to you through the Word trying to show you, you need, you're separated from me. You're not where you should be. And by the way, even if you're saved, you may not be where you should be. And you know it. The Spirit of God is pricking and prompting your heart and saying, hey, listen, you want to live your life in relationship with me and not in fellowship? That's a horrible place to be as a Christian, to be out of fellowship with God. Hey, there's nothing sweeter than to be saved and know it and have everyday fellowship with the Lord. Yes. And you fellowship with him by just getting into the word, just reading his word, just like your pastor said this morning. You know what a joy it was to read Psalms 40 and just have fellowship and let God speak to you and it just fills your heart. And, and, and that's what you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. But hey, there's Christians today that know their name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life and it can never be blotted out and they're on their way to heaven, but they never pray, they never read the Bible except maybe uh, to open a Bible on a Sunday when they come to church the rest of the week. It's all about them. They're having no fellowship with God. Hey, I'm going to tell you something. If that's where you're at, God's coming to you this morning and he's calling out to you and he's saying, where art thou? Where art thou? It's like the Lord was saying to Adam, where are you at, Adam? So first we see God's grace here in chapter 3 in God coming to them and then his grace in calling to them. And then notice uh, thirdly in verse number 11, it, it, notice something else here. It says, and he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? So now... Uh, he, his grace is going to be manifested by confronting them. He comes, he calls, and he confronts them. He confronts them. He's going to challenge them. He challenged Adam on the basis of his sin. God wasn't just fishing for information. He knew what they had done. He knew where they were hiding. He, he knew what had happened before he ever got into the garden. He was looking for a confession from Adam and Eve. Although he received nothing but excuses and blaming one another, this confrontation was so that Adam could see what he had done. He wanted Adam to acknowledge his sin. He, he, he had to accept blame for what he had done. Folks, it's no different today. God won't save you until you are willing to accept the blame for what you've done and a sin in your life. And God confronts us. 
God already knew the answers to all of these questions that he's asking Adam, but he wanted Adam to answer them himself. He's saying, Adam, what have you done? He wanted Adam to say, here's what I've done. Uh, here's what I've done. I, I, I sinned. I, I, I ate of the tree that you said not to. He, he, was, he was hoping Adam would acknowledge that the choice that he's made was wrong and that he acknowledges it and confesses it. And so God knew the answer to all of these questions. What God is doing is trying to bring about a sense of conviction to them. But notice in verse number 12, they begin to blame others instead of confessing what they've done. I thought this is so typical of our world we live in today. People who are doing wrong but justifying it by blaming someone else or excusing themselves because they maybe grew up on the wrong side of the railroad tracks and so they'd say, well, hey, I do what I do because you don't understand where I grew up and live. Hey, I got news for you. You're doing what you do because you make a choice. It has nothing to do with where you grew up. Well, you don't understand my daddy was a drunk and I drink because my dad and my mother were the drunks. No, you drink because you make a choice to drink. Well, you don't understand I'm, I'm hooked on cigarettes or drugs because I had a mom and a dad or I grew up in a family that they were just drug addicts. And so, No, you're on drugs because you choose to be on drugs. Don't blame mom and dad. Don't blame your environment. Don't blame because you were born on the other side of the railroad tracks. Hey, listen, we're in a blame type society. We want to do what we want to do and then blame somebody else for it. I, I, I'm just serious about it. You don't understand, I was an abused child. I, hey, I'm not trying to minimize some of the hurt and suffering that people have gone through, but don't, don't live your life looking back all the time. I, I was an abused child. Well, there's been a lot of people that's been abused. You know, you're going to have to get over that and move on and make a different choice and quit blaming where, where you're at. Because we got, we got the example of Adam and Eve here when God confronts them about what their sin is and out of fellowship with God, instead of confessing it, when he confronts them, they blame others. And God isn't looking for someone to blame others. He's looking for us to confess that our choice and what we did was wrong. And I'm where I'm at, Lord, because I chose to do this. I mean, Eve, she ate of the fruit, but I didn't have to eat of it, but I made a choice. Where the Bible says, and Eve gave unto her husband. Hey, he, she didn't, you know, it wasn't like at a wedding where you take a piece of cake and stuff it in her mouth and she stuffs it back in your mouth. No, it wasn't like that. He, she ate of the fruit and then the Bible says she gave it to her husband. It didn't mean he, she stuffed it in his mouth and he was saying, no, I'm not supposed to eat it. He, he gave it to her husband. He made the choice. I think I'll eat it too. That's what happened. So, you know, it's not blame Eve. He chose to do this. And because he was ahead of the federal race and God made him that way, God comes to him and confronts him. Adam could have blamed his, couldn't blame his wife and his wife couldn't blame the devil before God could ever redeem us back to himself. There has to come a confession unto him of wrongdoing and personal responsibility for our choices. You know, I'm so thankful that even though that I'm saved and born again, that when I do sin and we all sin, that we can come and confess that sin and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm always glad that there's an avenue back to God. And by the way, it's not that, you know, 
okay, I've sinned, I'm going to come to God. It'd be great that God doesn't have to come to us. We'd immediately start to confess what we did. But sometimes even as believers, God has to come to us as believers and call out to us and say, hey, where are you at with me now? You know, as believers. And trying to get us to confess that. And listen, if we just confess it, he'd make it all right. We'd be right back in fellowship. That's as simple as it gets. As soon as you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of that sin. I don't care what it is. I don't care what you've done. He'll forgive you of it. And you know what happens? You're immediately restored to fellowship. Wonderful. That's why you ought to be in the habit of confessing sin on a day-to-day basis because typically most Christians sin on a day-to-day each day. Some kinds of sin go on in our life. Oh, not me, brother. I live all the time. I never sin anymore. Well, you just, you just sin. You're not being truthful. That's a sin. So, you know, it's pure grace that shows the sinner the error of his ways. Conviction is not judgment. Conviction is God's grace. And without it, you'll die in your sins. That's why I believe in the necessity of preaching the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. Because when a man knows the truth, the Bible says the truth shall set him free. I've heard preachers say that, well, we, times have changed. I don't like to bring messages that bring about, make people feel like they're under conviction. Let me tell you something. I love to be under conviction. I like somebody that preaches that convicts me, steps on my toe. And by the way, that's how I got saved. With somebody got on got on my toes, made me realize I was a sinner. Did I like being called a sinner? No. But hey, it was the truth, and I liked it, the fact that he didn't make any apology for it, and got up there and just stomped away and preached hard and so forth. And brother, it got me down the aisle and got me on my knees, and 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 it was through that conviction that brought me to a confession. If you've got preaching today, you know we're in a society that just wants everybody to feel good. Come into the church. We just want you to make you feel good. Kind of a Joel Olstein kind of a thing. You know, everybody, you know, just the kind of messages where you come in, feel comfortable, and leave comfortable. Listen, you can't get people saved like that. They've got to know they're a sinner. They've got to know there's a God that loves them. They've got to know that the grace of God will save. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's grace preceding faith. God comes to us. We don't deserve it, but he comes to us. And so he, uh, you know, wants to save our souls. He wants to put us back into fellowship. Hey, listen, man's only hope and prayer to be saved is to fall under conviction before a holy God over their sin. And if there's ever to be saved, in Acts chapter 2, I got to thinking about Peter where he was preaching the word of God and the Bible says they were pricked in their heart. That means they fell under conviction. And what did they do? They cried out and said, what must we do to be saved? That's what the Bible says. God wasn't sympathizing with their excuses or buck passing. He was trying to get them to see the error of their seriousness of their sin and disobedience. And that's why he posed the question when he said, where art thou? Where are you at, Adam? So he comes to them. That's grace. He calls to them. That's grace. He confronts them to try to get a conviction. That's the grace of God. But notice notice fourthly here, we see his grace manifested when he covered them. He covers them. For the first time in history, an innocent lamb was slain and the blood is going to be spilt. The innocent dies for the guilty, the just for the unjust. The coat of skins is made to replace the fig leaves. You see, man tries to cover his own sin. 
That's what the fig leaves are a picture of. I've sinned, so I'll just cover it up. David tried that with his sin with Bathsheba. I'll just cover it up. Achan tried that when he hid the garment and the wedge of gold and sword under his tent and said, hey, I'll just cover it up. Nobody will know about it. Uh, duh. Well, you dumb dumb. You're dealing with God. He knows it's under the tent. He knows what Bathsheba and, and, and David did with her. He, he knows our sin. You can't cover it. No man can cover his own sin. And by the way, if you lived your whole life covering it all up and you never confessed it to God and found forgiveness of it, you would die in the sin that you covered up and be separated from God, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Man dies, he only goes to one of two places, according to the Bible. You're either going to go to heaven if you're saved, or you're going to end up going to hell for all eternity, separated from God. We have examples of that written right in the Bible. So for the first time in history, he sees God slay a lamb and spill the blood, the innocent dying for the guilty. For the first time, Adam sees death as God slays this lamb. For the first time, Adam sees blood. Never seen that before. Now you may say, all oh, that's judgment, but I see it as grace. When he slayed the animal, that was the grace of God. And of course we know that those, the blood of those that lamb that there was on Genesis chapter 3, the blood of that animal was just a picture of the blood of his son that would come as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. You know what the difference was? In the Old Testament, God could provide a covering for sin, but in the Old Testament, the sin could never be taken away until Jesus came. You see, in the Old Testament... It only covered their sin for one year. And then on the Day of Atonement, they'd have to come and offer another sacrifice, and it would cover their sin as a nation for another year. And then at the end of that year, they'd have to come again, have to come again. And they were moving from one year to the next year to the next year, till finally the Son of God came as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And the Bible says He didn't come to cover our sin, He came to take it away. If it was by the blood of bulls and goats that could take away sin, there would have been no need for him to come. So all of this was just a picture of God saying, just like Adam and Eve needed someone to provide a means to atone for their sin, so this innocent little lamb is going to be slain and the blood's going to be spilt. And Adam is basically saying to Adam, someday God, my son's going to come and he'll provide an atonement for the sins of all the world. So that anyone can be saved. And you'll never have to worry about that sin ever being brought back up again. He's going to die for the past, the present, and the future sins of mankind. So uh, because there's another uh, uh, time that God comes. I, I was thinking about this. This is in the first garden. He comes in the first garden. He calls to Adam in the first garden. He, he provides a confrontation with them in the first garden. He, 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 he covers their sin in the first garden. But there's another garden in the Bible besides the Garden of Eden. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's when he came again. He came into the world to call out to the world, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He's calling today. He's seeking today. He knows exactly where you're at. He poses that question. God's grace is still available today to anybody that will come to him. I'm so grateful that Adam answered the call and came out of the, 
the, the, the trees of the garden came out, God confronted him, and even though he blamed others, eventually he had to admit to God he'd done wrong. And when he admitted to God that he'd done wrong, God provided a means for that sin to be removed. And God can still do the same thing today. Hey, when he came, he came to suffer and bleed and die for the sins of all mankind. You see, I'm not a Calvinist. I believe that Jesus died for everybody. I don't believe he died for somebody or some people and then said the rest of you can go to hell. I'm, uh, everybody else that I've elected is going to go to heaven. No, he died as a ransom for all the sins of the world. He died as a ransom for all men. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Every time I see the cross of Calvary and Jesus is upon the cross and his arms are stretched out wide, to me it's almost like he's saying, whosoever will come unto me, I'll save them. It's, it's for everybody. When Jesus died on that cross, he took Adam's sin all the way to the very last <coughs> man's sin that will ever be born. And he placed it on his son. And his son went through all the suffering for us so that all we have to do. Hey, listen, salvation is not a complex thing. It's a very easy thing. All you've got to do is when you realize you're lost is just confess you're a sinner to God. And if you'll confess you're a sinner to God, he'll save your soul and forgive you. You'll appropriate what Jesus Christ has done on the cross of Calvary so that when you walk through the gates of of heaven, you'll never be able to <coughs> say to God, I got here on my own merit. No, you got here because Jesus died in your place. He came to restore fellowship with you. And by the way, if you're not saved, he still wants to have fellowship with you. And he's going to seek you and pursue you and dog your path until finally you get to a place where you'll finally confess it to God. And if you don't confess it to God, you'll die in your sins and throughout all eternity you'll regret that you never called out to God. But you'll never be able to blame God and say, well, God just wouldn't save me. No, he came to you many times. No, he called to you many times. Hey, he already provided a means. All you had to do is just confess it and call upon him and simply say, Lord, would you save me? That's what I did. I remember when I was being witnessed to in the Philippines, about two to three weeks went by. I kept this military guy that had gotten saved. He was a he was a, uh, a Lutheran senate from Missouri. He was a hog farmer. And he got saved over in the Philippines. And when he got saved, his life was changed. Just like we heard the choir saying this morning, this, this Bible will change your life. The, the Word of God changes lives. I remember him knocking on my barracks door. And I opened the door and he goes, Hi, I'm Mike Stryker and I'm a Christian and I'm out through the barracks just inviting people to come to our church. And of course, I was as lost as a goose going north in a snowstorm. And so I sat there and I said, you know, I don't have any desire for your church. I mean, I wasn't even kind to him. Don't, don't come back. I'm not interested in your religion. I don't need your crutch. I slammed the door. The next night, I opened the door. Hi. I, I thought I told you not to come back. Well, I've been praying for you. You've been, you doing what? I've been praying for you. And the next thing you know, he starts Tears coming down his face. He don't even know me. And he's saying, I, I prayed last night that you'd give me an opportunity to show you in the Bible how to be saved. Well, I figured it was as sincere as that is, and he cared for my soul that much, I was going to give him at least five minutes. So I said, well, say what you got to say. And boy, when he began to say what he had to say about the Bible, he didn't push it any further. He said, do you mind if I come back again sometime? And I said, yeah, that's fine. So he closed the door. Well, about a day or two later... He's at my door again. 
He wasn't trying to be forceful. He was so kind. He was an example of a believer in word and spirit. After about three weeks, I'd snuck out and got me a little New Testament. Didn't want all my buddies in the room to know about it. So I went down to the commissary, bought a little New Testament, stuck it under my mattress. When all my buddies would leave the room and so forth, I'd pull that little Bible out and go over some of those scriptures that he gave me. And man, when, when I'd read those scriptures, it was like a light bulb came on. I realized that I'm a sinner. I don't want to die and go to hell. And so on September the 15th, at 11.30 at night, I was charged of quarters that night. Everybody was gone. They were all in town. I thought, tonight I'm going to get saved. I'm going to, I'm going to ask Jesus to save me. So it was about 11.25, and I thought, well, about 12 o'clock, the moon, it was a full moon. About 11, 12 o'clock, I'll go out and I'll kneel down under the full moon, and I'll ask Jesus to come into my heart. Well, it got to be 11.30, and I got to thinking, what if I don't make it to 12 o'clock? What if I die without Jesus before 12 o'clock? I'll go to hell. Man, I, I ran into the charge recorder's room. I fell down to that couch and I began to cry out to God and said, God, save me right now. I don't want to wait till 12 o'clock. Would you save me? I'm a sinner. I've learned out of your Bible that I, you've come to me so many times through different people and you've come to me through this guy that's witnessing to me. And Lord, I, I'm under conviction. I, I want to be saved. I'm not blaming anybody. I just, I'm a sinner. Would you please save me? I was just bawling my eyes out. When I got done, there was a mirror inside the charger quarter of rooms. I was kind of thinking that after I got saved, I'd get up and see a halo, but it didn't happen. I thought maybe I'd see some angel dust coming down, but no, that wasn't the case either. I thought I'd see a glow like Moses had coming down off the mount. No, there was no glow. I looked into the mirror and I'm thinking, well, maybe I didn't get saved. I looked just like I did before. I might have looked on the outside a minute or two, but on the inside, everything had changed. I was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise till the day of redemption. Amen. My life's been changed forever. That's 52 years ago. It's never been the same. He can do that for you today. He's come to you how many times? How many times you've been invited to come to church? How many times somebody tried to give you that track? How many times somebody tried to tell you? How many times has he called out to you? He wants to save you today. He wants some of you that are saved to come back into fellowship with him. And you have an opportunity to do that if you put the blame game aside and confess that the choices you've made is where you're at today. You see, life is just a series of choices. I want my life to be different. Then you got to make different choices. And when you make the right choices according to the Bible... And in fellowship with God, it changes everything. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning with your heads bowed for just a few moments and your eyes closed. I know that Genesis 3 could be said it's the gloomiest chapter in the Bible. Oh, look what Adam and Eve did to mankind. But you know what? Though their sin, where grace abounded, grace much more abounded. Grace is right in the middle of chapter 3, though it's not mentioned but it's so manifested. Is he calling to you today? You're going to let the call go by again? Would you be willing to come today if you know in your own heart before God that you're not where you should be? If you can hear him saying, where art thou? And he's calling your name, where art thou? I know where you're at. Would you come this morning? 
And by the way, when you come to an altar, it doesn't always mean you're lost. And it doesn't always mean you're out of fellowship. Sometimes we just ought to come to the altar and pray for some of those that we've been wanting to see saved. And maybe just come to an altar and thank God for saving me. Do you know how many times I've been to an altar in 52 years just to come down and say thank you God for saving me when I didn't, I didn't deserve it? Thank you for coming to me. Every time we come into church we have an opportunity to come down to an altar and thank our Creator for dying in our place. So if you need to come this morning, we're going to have an invitation song. And as the song leader and the music plays, right now, God is calling to you. Come on. Just step out. Maybe just to come and thank him that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life and you can never die and go to hell. That you're going to go to heaven when you die. Or just the fact that you are in fellowship with God. That's a blessing. This is the time to really worship God because worship isn't just coming and sitting in a pew. Worship takes place when you come to an altar and bend a knee before the God of glory and he stands there and says, listen, Lord, thank you for saving me. Help me to stay by your grace. By the way, it takes God's grace every day in our life to stay in fellowship. You can't do it in the power of your own flesh. If you're gonna stay in fellowship with God, you gotta be in fellowship with him every day. If you're here today and you're not saved and not born again, and if you died today, you're not sure you're going to heaven, you're in the best place ever because the people in this church would love it if you'd come. We'd be happy for you. And we could take the Bible and in just a matter of moments show you how your life could be changed forever. Wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you want that in your life? We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.